Hello, I'm Daryl Bloodworth from the Episcopal Church of the Good Shepherd in Maitland, Florida. This is Lesson 11 in our study of the Gospel of John, and we pick up with the 10th chapter, and we'll begin with verses 1 through 6. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers." Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. These verses are about as close as John comes to giving us a parable. The first part of this chapter is apparently a continuation of the discussion Jesus was having with the Jews after he healed the man born blind. Remember, in the last part of the previous chapter, Jesus told the Pharisees they were spiritually blind. Here in this chapter, he uses a different metaphor, that of a shepherd, to try to get the Jews to understand his mission and who he is. He begins by comparing himself to a shepherd of the sheep. It's an image that would have resonated with the Jews. The Judean area was more amenable to raising sheep than for agriculture. So the responsibilities of a shepherd for the sheep was familiar to them. It was a dangerous job. There were wild animals such as wolves and bears that would feast on sheep if given an opportunity. But sheep are also the target of thieves and robbers. Sheep are very vulnerable animals. They can't defend themselves from predator animals, and they can't outrun them. If that weren't bad enough, they also have a tendency to wander off on their own. So sheep were never left out of the fold unless a shepherd was with them for protection. There were no sheepdogs in Judea, as are now prevalent in some parts of the world, so the full burden of protecting the sheep fell on the shepherd. He had to keep them together and keep them safe. Given the animal and human predators that were around, it was a dangerous job. At night, the shepherd would usually bring the sheep into the sheepfold by an entrance to an enclosed area. Sometimes it would have a physical gate, but more often the sheepfold would just have a narrow opening the sheep would pass through to get into the fold. There the shepherd would sleep at night to ensure the sheep remained in the fold. The shepherd himself was, in effect, the gate for the sheep. So Jesus begins his parable of the shepherd by announcing that the one who enters the sheepfold other than by the door or gate is a thief and a robber. In other words, anyone who seeks to get to the sheep other than through the shepherd at the gate is up to no good and will harm the sheep. The keeper of the gate, and this apparently refers to God, opens the gate only for the shepherd, not the robber or thief. The one trait of sheep that protects them is that they are capable of recognizing the voice of the shepherd and distinguishing his voice from others that might lead the sheep astray. So Jesus is saying that the shepherd will lead the sheep out of the fold and go before them to lead them where they need to go. 
They recognize his voice and will follow him. They won't follow a stranger because they don't recognize the voice of the stranger. Given the discussion with the Pharisees from chapter 9, Jesus appears to be telling the Pharisees that although they haven't seen the light in Jesus' teaching, the sheep, those who have believed in him through his teaching and his miracles, have recognized the truth of what Jesus has taught and who he is. And they will follow him because they recognize his voice as one coming from the Father. They won't follow a stranger, and here he's apparently referring to the Pharisees, because they don't recognize the voice of the stranger. Well, at this point, John helpfully whispers to us that they didn't understand what Jesus was trying to tell them. Let's continue on now with verses 7 through 10. So again, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus recognizes the Jews didn't understand what he was saying, so he expands on the metaphor. He explicitly says, I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever enters by me will be saved. Remember, the shepherd usually slept at the door of the sheepfold at night, and no sheep could get into the fold except through him. The sheepfold represents being in a safe place, protected by the shepherd. So any sheep that enters through him at the gate will be saved, and the shepherd will protect the sheep going in and out to pasture. Others trying to enter the sheepfold by any other means and through the shepherd are there to kill and destroy. Jesus explicitly says he wants the sheep to have life and have it abundantly. Now contrast that with what the Pharisees and most other Jews understood about how to get into the sheepfold. They thought this would come not from a person, but by strict adherence to the law. So this teaching by Jesus probably sounded like a heresy to most of the Jews. We continue on now with verses 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. So in these verses, Jesus expands once more on the role of the shepherd. What he is saying about the role of the shepherd would have been fully understood by the crowd. A good shepherd won't leave the flock when danger approaches, whether from a wild animal or from a thief. 
The good shepherd will defend the flock even to the point of giving up his own life. The hired hand, on the other hand, won't do this. He will run away when danger appears because he doesn't really care about the sheep. He's just there to earn a wage. Jesus then gets very explicit. He says he is the good shepherd and he is prepared to lay down his life for his sheep. Just as the Father knows and loves Jesus, Jesus knows and loves his sheep and will lay down his life for them. This is his most intentional reference to his death that he has given thus far. And it contrasts dramatically from what the hired hand is prepared to do. In verse 16, Jesus gives a hint of what is to come after his death and resurrection. In the Great Commission, he tells his disciples to go into all the world to make disciples. The Gentiles, which is whom Jesus is referring uh, to here, are the other sheep that do not belong to this fold. So Jesus is foretelling bringing Gentiles into the flock so that there will be one flock, the church, and one shepherd of all the sheep. Of course, at this time, no one present would have imagined that Jesus was talking about bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. But John is writing many years after the events he's describing. By the time he writes his gospel, there were more Gentiles than Jews in the church. But they were still all one church, one flock, with Jews and Gentiles alike. By the time John writes these words, he is able to recognize how prophetic Jesus' words were, even though they undoubtedly made no impression at the time. Jesus continues to point to his coming death in verses 17 and 18. He says the Father loves him because he will lay down his life before taking it up again, which is a reference to his forthcoming resurrection. But he makes it quite clear that he will lay down his life. No one will take it from him. In other words, it is the voluntary act by him to die, as we will see when we get to chapters 18 and 19. Furthermore, he will lay down his life voluntarily because it is the Father's will that he do so. Let's continue on now with verses 19 through 21. Again, the Jews were divided because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is out of his mind. Why listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? In these verses, we see the same dichotomy of opinion about what Jesus is saying. Some of the Jews continue to say that Jesus has a demon. In other words, his teaching is from Satan. Others, however, say these are not the words you would hear from a demon. Besides, what demon can open the eyes of the blind? Once again, Jesus is misunderstood, and the opposition to him among the Jews continues to grow. Let's press on now with verses 22 through 30. At that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. John tells us the events beginning with verse 22 take place during the festival of dedication, which is better known by its Jewish name, Hanukkah. So it's several months after the events of the previous verse. So there's a several month interlude uh, between verses 21 and 22. It's winter, probably mid to late December. We're now only three to four months away from the cross. The opposition to Jesus among the Jewish leaders has continued to grow. In fact, the the Jewish leaders confront Jesus in the portico of Solomon in the temple and demand that he tell them plainly whether he is the Messiah. Keep in mind what they are asking. They are not asking Jesus whether he is God's son. They are asking whether he is the military leader that will lead an uprising of the Jewish people to kick out the Romans and establish Israel once more as a leader among the nations. While Jesus is the Messiah, his role is not the one the Jews are expecting. That's probably at least one of the reasons for the response Jesus gives here, as well as the response he has given previously. He says, I have told you, but you don't believe me. He also reminds them that the works, the miracles that he has performed, testify that he is doing the work of the Father. But they don't believe the works reveal who he is because they are not part of his sheep. By this, Jesus is saying that his sheep are those who believe he is from the Father and doing the works of the Father. That certainly would not include most of the Pharisees at this point. He also says his sheep will have eternal life and not one of them will perish or be taken away from him. He concludes by saying, the Father and I are one. Jesus has, of course, made such a statement before, and it's blasphemous to the Jewish leaders. Continue on now with verses 31 through 42. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? Jesus answered, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, though only a human being, are making yourself God. Jesus answered, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If those to whom the word of God came were called gods, and the scripture cannot be annulled, can you say that the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming because I said, I am God's Son? If I am not doing the work of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Then they tried to arrest him again, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier, and he remained there. Many came to him, and they were saying, John performed no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. 
So when Jesus makes the statement that he and the Father are one, uh, the Jewish leaders took up stones to stone him to death. I think this gives us an idea of how furious they are with Jesus. Remember, Pontius Pilate had given an order prohibiting the Jewish leaders from employing the death penalty without Pilate's consent. But they're so emotionally overcome with Jesus proclaiming his divinity, being equal with God, that they're willing to risk disobeying Pilate to get rid of Jesus. As they're making their preparation to stone Jesus, he asks him for which of his deeds, the, the miracles he has done, do they intend to stone him? The response is not for any good deed, but rather for claiming equality with God. It's important at this point that we fully appreciate what the Jews are saying. Remember, one heresy from the time of the early church, right up to modern times, is that Jesus was a good man and a good teacher, but only a man and never claimed to be anything else. Well, recognize here that the Jewish leaders are ready to kill Jesus precisely because he was making the claim of being God's son. Indeed, as we will soon see, Jesus is eventually actually convicted by the Sanhedrin court on the charge of blasphemy, claiming to be equal with God. So if even Jesus' enemies are saying he committed blasphemy by contending he and the Father were one, it's rather specious to say Jesus was only a man and never claimed to be anything else. Verses 34 through 36 of the ones I just read, uh, can be difficult for us to understand. Remember, in these verses, Jesus is responding to a group that included rabbis and Pharisees. And Jesus' argument is directed to them. And they would understand the argument Jesus makes, although they won't agree with it. He quotes Psalm 82, verse 6, which includes the words, You are God's children of the Most High, all of you. This psalm is a warning to unjust judges. Judges were were specially commissioned by God to bring the justice of God to the people. And in carrying out this mission, they were doing the work of God. The Jewish word for judges was Elohim, but that word also means gods with a little g. At various places in Scripture, men who were called or specially commissioned by God to a task were referred to as gods, again, little g. Jesus is saying, if those who have been commissioned by God for a particular task in Scripture have been referred to as gods, again, little g, and Scripture cannot be annulled, how can you condemn me? one who has been commissioned by God to do the works I have done. How can you condemn me because I have said I am God's son? It was an argument that made perfect sense using reasoning familiar to his Jewish audience. But they, of course, were not ready to concede Jesus' miracles were from God. Jesus follows up this argument with another that goes essentially like this. Even if you don't believe I am from the Father... Recognize that the works themselves are of the type you would expect from God so that your minds may be open to understand I am from the Father, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. 
Their minds, however, are not open. They're still closed despite all of the evidence that God was working in Jesus. So they try to arrest him again. But John tells us Jesus escaped without providing any details of how he did so. In verse 40, we're told that Jesus then leaves Jerusalem. It's clear it isn't a safe place for him any longer. He's a wanted man. So he leaves Jerusalem and goes to the area where John the Baptist had previously been baptizing east of the Jordan. Although by now, John is dead. There, Jesus gathers more followers who recognize that his works or signs were from God and they became believers. Jesus will remain out of Jerusalem until his triumphant return on Palm Sunday. Next lesson, we will take up chapter 11.